Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. And we're off and running, folks. Let's get well, that this one going. Up right there. That's all you need to know, folks. All right. I think that's our intro. How did, how did you, yeah, how did you get interested? Is. Hey, wait, he's the interviewer. You know what? <laughs> How'd Why you get not? interested in, in uh, waterfall hunting? Aiming for the beak. But before that, what, what is the antecedent thing? Was it your dad, your grandfather, yourself, just personal inspiration? How'd you get interested? How about as an outdoor, outdoor person in, in general? All right, what's up, everybody? Uh, Mike McDowell has used two words, ornithological. Or- ornithological. Yes. Ornithological and antecedent. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Neither of which oh, I, I know what one, they actually. mean. No, uh, but uh, we're here to talk today about ducks. We're going to talk about quackers and everything about them. You ignored his question. I, yeah. I didn't have yeah. an answer. You looked he, flustered. I could tell because all you wanted, like, really, I think the answer is just you were out for blood. Yeah, <laughs> and that's why you. That's wanted. not it. All right, rewind. <laughs> okay, uh, so hello. We came in hot on this one. We're going to talk about waterfowl, like Mark said. In kind of a one-on-one fashion, we've discussed some other ideas for podcast episodes around waterfowl, but we figured before we jump in on any of the uh, more complex stuff, we should probably, for all the listeners out there that we have of many different interests and hobbies, we should probably do a waterfowl one-on-one for those who just aren't familiar with it, right? Makes sense. So we're joined by Ryan Muckinern, waterfowler for a long-ish time. Ages. Yes. Right. In fact. Mark, you've been waterfowling for a while. Uh, yeah, to a degree, yeah. I don't know anything about it. We have Mike McDowell across the table, who was the one using all the fancy words, who knows a lot about birds, which is quite important. You got to know about what you're after in order to you know, successfully or, or strategically get after it. And we have Eric yep. um, for emotional support. <laughs> yep. Thanks, Eric. Relatability. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Eric brings the relatability yep. and I and myself uh, if, of this podcast. I've, if too. we need to talk about whitetail bucks while we're talking about waterfowl, we have Eric. Hey, I've been ducking since I was knee-high to a duck. What? Ten years old. You were a pretty small ten-year-old. Well, mm-hmm. I cannot wait to expound on this. Okay. We'll get into it. <laughs> so, I feel like the natural first place to start is what, what constitutes waterfowl. Is it just ducks? Is it geese? Is it, it are cranes? Is it what's what's waterfowl? What, yes. Well, you've got. Oh, is uh, it all birds? No. In in the U.S., waterfowl. I mean, ducks, geese, swans, um, coots, uh, armagansers, waterfowl. They are. They're a type of duck. Mm-hmm. Um, not loons. They're, don't. They're uh, piscivores, though. Are they? Mm-hmm. Because, fish. Because they eat fish. fish yeah. Well, that's what you call a fish eater, huh? Yeah. I always, I always just call them fish, fish eaters. eaters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't eat those, kids. Uh, <laughs> I think it, in, depending on the state, well, no, a, a crane would be considered a waterfowl, um, I think, in most no. in most oh. states. You're buying a migratory bird stamp. In that context. Yes, sure. and I believe, and I'd have to check on this, somebody who can hunt cranes in their state, follow up, do you need a state waterfowl permit or stamp? to hunt sandhill cranes. Um, they're often mm. found near water. But taxonomically, they're a different thing. Well, sure. So that's yeah. that's the... They have to be like birds that just live in water? Is that... Or around, I suppose. Or like around. a sandhill crane. Yeah. yeah. Well, you look at like uh, doves, though. You need your federal migratory bird you stamp do. for doves. Yeah. Same with snipe. I was going to ask Woodcock. about snipe, though, because they're 
a watery, marshy type bird, yeah? Technically, a sh- what we call a shorebird. A shorebird, yeah. Like killdeer, plovers, sandpipers, they'd be in that. And, Would and they be considered a water? A water no, bird. A water bird, okay. A shorebird, I guess, a, yeah. A shorebird. Yeah. I, they're, I they're a shorebird, technically. For, okay. the, for mm. this, though, we're talking more about ducks, ducks and geese. Ducks, geese. Yep. All that good Swans. stuff. Yeah. So these birds, essentially, they migrate tw- twice a year or whatever. So they go down south when it gets cold up here, and they come back up north when it gets... Why don't they ever just... Why don't they just stay down south? Some, some, some do. Some overwinter. Yeah. Yeah. As Ryan yeah. probably can attest to, like Michigan, yep. for example, when it... Oh, some even stay up north yeah. when it gets cold. For, for years, when I was uh, growing up, my dream waterfowl hunt was to go hunt the Aleutian Island chains for a duck called Old Squaw. They've now renamed it the Long-Tailed Duck. I'm going to call it Old Squaw. So my whole plan was I'm going to save all this cash. I'm going to go up to the Aleutians. I'm going to go anchor in 180 feet of water and, and hunt Old Squaw. And then I found out that just outside of Green Bay, overwintering are tens of thousands of Old Squaw on Lake Michigan. And it changed my life. Wisconsin's a great state. That ought to save you some fuel. Where's the Aleutian Islands? In Alaska. Oh, okay. So yeah, going, going through the... The, the great ocean there. That's way different than I thought. I thought they were in Superior. Those are the apostles. Oh, right. Okay. Gotcha. Well, then, Mike, something we talk about fairly frequently uh, is the resident goose population, which a lot of states do have resident goose populations. We do have that... populations of non-migratory geese, right. which can create all kinds of problems. We can get into that at some point. Okay, yeah. So they're problematic if they stay. They can wreck habitat for other other wildlife. Other wildlife that's trying to also stay Use the in the same habitat. Oh, I yeah. see. But it's not a problem when it's summer because there's just an abundance of habitat? Well, it, it can be a problem because if you have a non-migratory population and they breed too, it gets larger and larger and larger, and they can change the composition of the habitat so it's no longer suitable even in the summertime for other species. usually birds and maybe certain mammals. So they can actually, over time, change the structure of the habitat to be less desirable for other wildlife. Well, including us. You look at, you know, potentially a golf course or a public park. Um, Sometimes they get overtaken by geese and make it undesirable to want to walk barefoot, perhaps, or send your kids into the water. And that's why you get those early goose seasons. Which is very timely for right now. Exactly. And that you're hunting predominantly resident birds unless you get some really crazy weather that pushes in birds mm-hmm. from up north. And when people are hunting waterfowl, it's primarily during the spring and fall, correct? Snow geese during the spring. Snow geese during yep. the spring. Yep. And, and then, then ducks during du- the fall? Ducks and then dark geese um, during the fall. You can also hunt snow geese in the fall as mm-hmm. well. How, how is that all determined? So, like, are you trying to are you trying to mesh this hunt in with when they're migrating? Because then they're going to be in the air, and they're you can shoot them easier. So, like, with, how does with that snow work? geese, it's because there's so many of them that I think that's why we have a spring snow goose season yep. to try to mitigate their numbers or control their numbers a little bit. And by so many, Mike's talking about this drastic changing of landscape. The snow and Mike, please speak to this because I know you're compassionate about it. But the snow goose population on the tundra. Um, way up north, what they have done up there is unbelievable just by grazing these birds and their huge numbers. An example would be um, primarily my, my interest in, in birding is primarily songbirds. So mm-hmm. I tend to be a little uh, a little more sensitive to the plight of songbirds than, say, waterfowl, especially the snow goose is a, is a classic example 
where I read a paper where I was I was surprised to learn that snow geese are are affecting savanna sparrow numbers in Manitoba. Hmm. Uh, so hmm. that's a bird that's declining anyway just because of loss of habitat. But snow geese aren't making it any easier for savanna sparrows. There's you know, discernible plummet to their numbers because the snow geese are changing the, the habitat in Canada for, for these sparrows to thrive. Oh, wow. Okay. So from a perspective of a savanna, savanna sparrow, although they'll never know what we use as a, a, a management tool, for decreasing the snow goose population, they would be grateful if we did so. <laughs> if we started shooting some of them out of the sky. And so, again, kind of like doing it in spring, though, is there just is that just the best time to... Is that when they're most killable? I guess is that even like a... So you're catching, you're catching birds on the return to the nesting grounds from like the coastal, like the, the Gulf and, and from the southern part of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, you're catching young birds, juveniles. Um, we were out hunting in South Dakota and I learned a lot about snow goose populations out there and what kind of birds you'll generally shoot. And they said that almost all of them are juvies. Rarely will you actually kill an adult bird. In they this. just kind of figure out the course and like, if I go there, I get shot or my buddies got shot. Yeah. So you're trying to catch those younger birds going up. And again, this is to try to knock down that hmm. snow goose population. Now with other ducks, I think we don't hunt them in the spring to allow them to nest and, and proliferate and increase their populations because we're not out there trying to kill all the ducks. And I don't think we're out there trying to kill all the snow geese either, but there, right. there's a lot of snow geese. Well, I think you pointed to something there, Ryan. You know, once those juveniles, if they make it through that, you know, first or second season, they can live for a oh, long time. Oh, and yeah. that begins to just compound yeah. and compound and mm-hmm. compound. And then, like we talked about with those, the impacts on habitat. And yeah. when people um, do. It's an interesting phenomena. When people do shoot some of those old ones, I mean, they're sometimes up into the teens, aren't oh, yeah. they? Yep. Think about how far those things have traveled yeah. in their life. If you shoot a 10 year old snow goose, yeah. I mean, that thing has flown literally around the world. Yeah. It's That's, got a lot of miles on it. Yeah. Sort of a, a tangent here, but I like, uh, Eric's point about uh, how far a bird can travel in its lifetime. There was a shorebird, which is a type of water bird, called a red knot, which was uh, banded some 20 years ago. And this bird was recaptured, released, recaptured, released, and they estimated, I think its, it's tag number was B95, and there's actually a, there's a book about it. And if you Google red knot B95, you can read all about it. But it has flown enough miles during the course of its 19-year life, and we don't know if it's still alive or dead, hmm. 250,000 miles. So from here to the moon, wow. that bird has flown north and south, <laughs> north and south. Because they, they nest way up in uh, the northern part of North America, and then they overwinter way down in South America. So that's a big stretch Holy twice smokes. a year. Yeah, South, north to South America. Yeah. yeah, and they primarily do that, most of that flight nonstop. So a bird in its 10, 20-year life can rack up That's a lot insane. of miles. The Subaru of birds. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel very inadequate now when I go out for like a three-mile run and I'm exhausted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how long does that migration take one, one way then, do they speculate, do you know? Probably about a month or two. A month. And they're flying nonstop? Well, not always. They do have, and part of the the point Ryan was making about where you would hunt at different times of the year, depending on where you are in the United States, part of that is historical stopover points. Mm -hmm. There are places we know of uh, where waterfowl, other game birds, will stop during their northward or southward migration, where there are opportunities for uh, hunters to um, take take some game. So a lot of birds, most birds, 
Uh, some birds make the flight nonstop, which is really incredible. It doesn't take them as long, but birds will sometimes get knocked down by bad weather or uh, strong uh, opposing winds. If you're northbound, you don't want no winds in the face because that slows down your migration. It increases your energy consumption. Yep. So birds will often, when there's bad weather, they'll just hunker down in a stopover point where the habitat's good for them, where they can rest, where they can eat. And these create opportunities for birders and hunters alike to watch hmm. and or hmm. take game. On the flip side of that, if you're catching birds as they're coming south, I've always been told that you want to hunt the day after like a big gnarly cold front comes through. Is that the same effect? You know, you could have a spot where one day theoretically there's next to no birds in the area. And then the very next day after 20 mile an hour, north winds, cold weather, all of a sudden that's filled up with. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happens. And it, it reverses fall to spring. So, um, Yesterday, or two days ago, we had a tremendous storm. Okay. Behind it were northwest winds, winds coming out of the northwest. Well, that night, uh, Nexrad radar lit up showing the presence of migratory birds at hmm. night, which primarily fly at night. So you can actually predict that if for birding, and you could do this for hunting too, is if you see a cold front go through and you look at wind direction and you see strong north-northwest winds, the next day there's going to be phenomenal birding. Hmm. Just the, the woods prairies will be just full of, of different birds. And uh, I know I've clarified this once on the podcast before, but north-northwest winds means it's coming from that direction. Correct. Right? Okay, yeah. gotcha. And the reason that the birds do that is they have a tailwind. It takes up yeah. less energy it's to like fly. Their, uh, they it's can like double their, their speed. Of the jet stream. Yeah. Yep. Cool. It's I like that scene in uh, Finding Nemo where they get in the... You know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, right. AC, dude. Yeah. I'm here for a reason. <laughs> it's Yes. It, thank you, Eric. The relatable has brought it back to yep. the EAC, dude. So I'll drink my coffee to that. Well done. Well done. Now, Mike, with that, with that, you know, tailwind, if you will, pushing them down, is it the weather? It's, I mean, it's getting colder. Like you get a storm that rolls in, potential weather, sure. snow, things like that. Is that. Are those temps and covering up food sources? Absolutely. And that's another driving factor of migration, um, especially with insectivorous birds like warblers, vireos, thrushes, flycatchers, which are not huntable <laughs> legally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Noted. Go on YouTube and just do a search. No. But anyway, yeah, as the temperature gets colder and colder, a lot of birds that eat invertebrates, uh, arthropods, that's not available anymore. So mm -hmm. if they don't get going, they're going to die. Mm -hmm. So okay. they got to get going too because the resources for food become less and less. So these populations got to go south. And some birds don't, and they get in trouble. Yeah. So mm -hmm. Is that, uh, are, are ducks also doing the migratory thing? So are they, like, now in the fall, are they getting ready to head They're south? heading That's south. That's essentially what's happening. Okay. All right. I'll switch gears a smidge here, going to the hunting uh, part of it. When people go hunting for waterfowl, I've seen people out in gigantic fields, just open fields. I've seen people in, I think, in boats. Yep. I've seen people along riverways. What's up with all these different places species, to hunt? Species dependent. Um, yep. So when I started duck hunting, it was, I'll just say waterfowling. There was no Canada goose hunting, so to speak. And that wasn't that long ago. So I started pretty seriously duck hunting every year when I was six. And then I'd been tagging along in the blind since I was like five and then really got into it into my early teens. So I was hunting shore, uh, like from the shore or, or on riverways and things like that for ducks. Um, and then depending on what species, if I was hunting like wood ducks and teal and, and mallards, 
Um, I was hunting in a small lake or a, a swamp or a river. When I started shifting my focus to diving ducks, there was larger bodies of water um, that we were hunting. And then... And what does a diving duck do? They just, they look for large bodies of water so they can... Yeah, so they'll, they eat like uh, crustaceans and invertebrates on the bottom of the lake, as opposed to like a dabbling duck or a puddler might, might like a mallard, for instance, uh, might be like a filter feeder and they eat more, uh, you know, weed and, and grasses and, and things. And they, I think, inevitably eat invertebrates as well. But Diving ducks eat stuff off the bottom of the lake? Yeah, yep. They can swim down yes. to the bottom yeah. of the lake? Absolutely. I always thought when they said diving ducks that they were doing like, you know, like... Like a gannet? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, when you watch those old... Kamikazes. Uh, World War II. Yeah. yeah, like a kamikaze, but they're actually diving into the yeah. water. Yep. So Swimming way down yep. and then eat, feeding and then coming back up. Yep. So when they're starting on, you know, it's yep. not like when you see like maybe like a, an osprey coming in from the top and just, you know, I mean, that's like a bird of prey, right? But, the, you know, they sit on the water and then when they want to eat, they just bloop, yep. dip wow. down in yeah. and dive. So, cool. so adept are they at this that their their physiology is changed compared to like a mallard. So if you were to look at say a, a ringneck duck or a scop and compare it to a mallard, the mallard's legs are further forward on the duck, and it it has the ability to like walk on land much better than say a scop or a ringneck duck would, where their legs are, are slightly longer and a little more rearward facing. Um, so like they can flippers, more yeah, propeller propulsion. Okay. Yeah. Now if we get into a further specialization in a species and look like at a common loon. I don't think it, can a loon even walk? I don't think I don't, so. Yeah. Yeah. So like a, like a loon look like, um, in fact, that is true. Just an anecdote, Ryan. Um, sometimes loons get up back to Northern part of the country too early. And on a frozen lake, the DNR has had to rescue stranded loons from, from the ice because they can't, they can't walk oh, and they, just and they can't get enough swimming distance how they take off a flight to regain flight yeah so the dnr has had to where the they get so far up north because of favorable south winds there they are loons on ice and they they're just stuck there yeah. so oh. at least it, when people find it you know they report it to the dnr and the dnr comes out and how do they get them flying again if they need like i don't I'm not sure exactly i think it's, it's just kind of yeah. like a like, slingshot yeah, <laughs> it's gonna, you like you get somebody on ice skates and then you tell the loon to spread its wings and you just get going at a good speed <laughs> don't know lighter. the answer to that that is but it's, the most canadian thing i've ever heard <laughs> <laughs> tell it tell it behind a piper cub you know and then just let it go like a glider and <laughs> tail cut like the rope <laughs> they might just cart them south to open water yeah okay I think yeah, that is what yeah. they do. That makes probably yep. more sense. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, yeah. And so field hunting, um, at least regionally for me, um, for Canada geese, got really big when I was in probably like 7th, 8th grade. So right around like 2000, 2001, where we started having these explosive Canada goose numbers in which generally you hunted them in the fields. So you'd have decoys out on, on a grain field. You'd be hunting from like a pit. Uh, that you dig into the earth or, or um, at that time, uh, what they call the coffin or the layout blinds became very popular. And to speak to the effectiveness of this, when I shot my first goose, I think I was like eight or nine years old and it was always past shooting. So you'd find some mm-hmm. corridor in which geese would fly by. You would hope that one of them flew by low enough, but you could maybe sneak a pellet into it and pull it out of the sky. When we had switched to layout blinds, we were shooting geese at like 10 yards, 20 yards. I've never seen anything like mm-hmm. this in my life. It was like going to a new planet. Why did the layout blind change that? Like, it just made you less visible? Yeah, so the level the level of concealment. The first layout blind hunt I did was in a, a, a cut wheat field, and they had mounded the, um, the stalks of wheat up to make bales. And so we had 
set our layout blinds inside of these rows of wheat pile and then set the, the decoys out in throughout. And we, we were killing geese. And at first I, I didn't know what to do. Like goose came out like 40 yards, but like, I think we can hit that. And the guy's like, nope, don't shoot. I'll tell you when. And we're sitting in these blinds and I am like shaking because these geese are coming in what they call cupped and set wings out, feet out, doing a backpedal, trying to land. And they're that close. They're 10, 15, 20 yards off max. At that point, they almost appear stationary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and that has now become the way you hunt geese. Um, And, and like, that was the tactic for snow geese forever, right? You're using large spreads. And and it just, it it was like, for me, it was like a switch being flipped on the, the means of take. And you just don't pass shoot geese anymore. It's like, that's an incidental thing that, Usually he's kind of scoffed at, and you're like, ah, let's see if we can land him. Yep. Um, and now they do that a lot with mallards too, and and other species too, like pintails and and widgeon, even wood ducks and mallards. You can you can decoy in the field if you've got the right feed, if you've got the right location, um, especially if you're like looking at the the Dakotas, Nebraska, um, eastern Montana, Saskatchewan, um, places like that where you're having large grain fields in which the birds are coming in and landing. You can hunt them very successfully on the ground. You can get you can get. Geese and ducks, and ducks that yep. way, absolutely. Because what other way do people otherwise normally get ducks? You said like on shorelines of yep. smaller lakes, small and lakes. And stuff? Yeah, I mean, and and like flooded grain fields. That's another cool way to hunt ducks. Um, anywhere really where you're getting bodies of water, it's generally where you're going to get the ducks. And then dependent on your duck species, like you're not going to shoot a scop in a field. Like it's not going to land in a grain field. If it does, it's having a very bad day and it's very confused anyway. But yeah, so you're you're hunting a body of water whether it's moving or static, uh, for, quote, ducks otherwise. Right, and then your tactics are going to change or be specific to, like we've talked about, you know, diving ducks and puddle ducks. They're going to be in different places and different types of water and different habitat, and they also decoy differently. Mm -hmm. So you're going to kind of attack each one, you know, depending on what you're likely to encounter. Yeah, I definitely want to ask about decoys, but I also want to ask first, there's so many kinds of ducks, mm-hmm. and I think geese, too. I don't really know. Yeah, definitely. But there's certain seasons that you'll hear people open up for, like, oh, I'm going for, when you said ringneck or, yep. like, scops or whatever, mallards. or How do you, how can you tell? Like, when I look up and I see, like, a, just a bunch of honkers or I see whatever, like, just a duck or a bird floating along the water, I'm like, oh, a duck. Neck, neck and head length and profile tail length, wing beat pattern, and then the place that you're at. That's mm-hmm. one that baff- the wing beat pattern, you can yeah. actually tell by how they flap their oh, yeah. wings. Absolutely. And I yeah. think that actually, once you can differentiate it, I think that becomes the easiest yeah. way to differentiate them is wing beats mm-hmm. rather than yeah. you like just, profile. Do you guys just go on YouTube and look up a bunch of videos? Like no, how man, do mallards like... Sp- spending time in the blind. Mm-hmm. Okay, really yeah. probably with somebody who knows what they're doing, because otherwise, if right. you're spending time in the mind, you're just duck. Now, duck, no, duck, yeah, and there's duck, a couple like <laughs> like save for the most adept, either birder or duck man or woman, like hooded merganser and wood duck, <laughs> and teal and wood duck are, yeah. are tough sometimes. So a merganser, especially <laughs> like a hoodie. Uh, <laughs> Elementary stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For Mike here. Uh, a hooded merganser, uh, or I guess even a red-breasted merganser and a wood duck, they both have kind of longer tails um, okay. than, than, say, like a mallard would. They're a smaller-bodied duck. They have an extremely similar wing profile and beat. They're both cavity nesters, and I think that's kind of where 
this might come from. Might what speak is, to that. What is a cavity? So they nest? nest in holes in trees. Oh, okay. Yeah. So a hooded merganser, weirdest thing you'll ever see is a hooded merganser in a tree. It's chilling. It's strange because it's a fish duck too, and it's bizarre. So cavity nesters, long tails, similar wing beats, kind of a, a long semi-pointed beak on a, on a wood duck, definitely a pointed beak on a merganser. When you see them flying in the early morning, unless you're like really on your game, you're like, uh, that's a wood duck. And then you shoot and you're like, nope, that's definitely a scissor bill or a hooded merganser. Well, but like Dinosaur what happened? birds. Yeah. <laughs> like that's got to... You have to imagine that's got to yeah. happen to people where there's, there's a season for certain ducks yep. and they go boom and then oop. Yeah. So you got to be really diligent with that. Um, when I was growing up in Minnesota, we weren't able to hunt canvasbacks. They had a, a, a closed season on canvasback that was a duck of very special interest and they were their numbers were very down. And it, it does happen. People inadvertently shoot them, especially when it's you know either in the morning or in the evening. You're looking at a canvasback. Maybe you're not super in tune with how much larger they are than, say, a redhead, which they look very similar to. Like, if they're sitting on the water, at first glance, you'd be like, redhead or canvasback could be. Similar color patterns and markings. Um, yeah, they shoot one, and they're like, oh, wow, you can't shoot that. Then you have to report yourself to the DNR and um, that kind of thing. But, yeah, mm-hmm. you, you've got to be diligent with your duck ID, and, and you don't you don't just swing holes in the sky and hope for the best. Although not lethal, birders never make misidentifications in the field. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> Happens all the time. Okay. All right. Yeah, I feel like I feel like it's gotta when you're looking into the sky or whatever, you see him flying or you see him floating on the water, it seems like you gotta find a good place to be. You gotta see birds, ducks, whatever. Then you have to identify them. But if you take all that time to identify them, how do you, are they close enough to shoot at that point? Or how do you get them close to shoot? Or how do you? I think that's the exciting part about duck hunting. Yep. Is you're like, ducks? Question mark? Yes. And this is all in a very compressed time frame. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's a whole flock of scop. Uh, here they come. You know, instead of, oh, it's a flock of wood ducks. And I have my two wood ducks for the day. So, yeah, it, it happens very very tight time frame. Do you just have to be lucky enough for them to just fly over you, or do you have to? Well, I mean, that's when you employ decoys and calling techniques. And, and scouting is yeah. huge. Yeah. Like, like we talk about scout, scouting. How do you all... scout it if you if they're not like they're in Canada when you're scouting? You'll so there's two answers to that. I mean, if you're if you're in an area for year after year, you can start to find historic places. Okay, there were a bunch of geese on the south end of this lake last year at this oh. time frame, and adapt that to you know the current year. But a lot of it too, like you know, especially right now or even later in the season, you get birds on a feeding and roosting pattern. So they're roosting on water. You know, they're they're hanging out, loafing in the the throughout the middle of the day. They're not just gone. They're but they're not actively flying around. So you can find those areas, and then you know, like goose hunters, especially, you'll see guys this time of year driving the back roads with binoculars, glassing fields, and figuring out where they're they're feeding and spending a lot of their time. And then not only that, but they'll try and pinpoint the exact area in the field. Because even if you're off just a little bit, that can be the difference of a successful hunt and one that you just educated a bunch of birds. This time of year, for people uh, wondering, I don't think we mentioned it yet, it is September 4th. Mm -hmm. Just for people who listen way later on in the year or whenever. To Eric's point, birds would make excellent cartographers because they it's almost making maps. They can really imprint on the landscape and remember it from year to year. Hmm. And even when uh, they're at a stopover point, they may have uh, a body of water where they roost, where they sleep at night, 
But then come morning, they'll, they may go feed in other places and they'll return to those spots day after day until that resource of food runs out. And then they might find some other place or then continue on migration. So I think what Eric is speaking to there, and correct me if mm-hmm. I'm wrong here, is a lot of that's very predictable year yep. after year. Okay. Because the habitat generally stays the same year after year, and these birds kind of remember, or it's genetic information, whatever it is, they tend to do about the same thing year after year, the same time of year. So mm-hmm. a lot of it's very predictable. Hmm. And then within those micro time frames, I think what Eric was also speaking to there is you might drive a back road and be like, oh, cool, there's birds, they're hitting this field in the evening, now I've got a game plan for tomorrow because they're still going to be likely using that resource. Right. And then on the flip side of that too, you can, you know, you'll hear guys talk about trafficking birds. I'm sure that's, you know, something that we'll get into as far as like decoy spreads are concerned, but you can almost anticipate the times where a bunch of birds are going to be pushed through an area. And then that would be a time where you would put out a bunch of decoys in a field and literally like air traffic control, like you're trying to make the biggest spread possible to get that, get them, their eyes on your location and then coax Mm -hmm. them in, in range. I feel like we've mentioned decoys enough times that we almost have to talk about it, right, at this point. But decoys are birds, like, if someone were in marketing making the the best Super Bowl commercial ever for a crowd of watching geese, would they take the bandwagon approach and say, hey, everybody else is doing it, you should too, and then all the geese would be like, all right, I'm on board. Is that like, are they, do they just go where all the other geese are, you know, like essentially follow the, oh, look, other geese, it's good. Or is that what ducks do too? I mean, is that why That's, people put out decoys like, hey, it's. I'll let these friends. guys speak to that. But they I, have FOMO. I do think they, <laughs> they learn that the presence of decoys does not necessarily mean yep. safe to stop here. Okay. But generally large congregations of birds in general, other birds will say, oh, there's a place to stop and rest and get food, so we're going to do that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Caveat, go ahead, waterfall guys. No, I think you nailed it. I mean, I think that's what you're you're trying to do. I mean, it's almost like uh, a, a big signal to the other birds that are like, yeah, there's a food source here. There's a good place to rest. There's good habitat. You know, it's almost like, uh, you know, the concept has been proven, and uh, they're going to join in the fun and, and get, get their portion of it. I thought I heard, maybe it was you, Ryan, who told me that, the plumage of the decoy has to change periodically because. Oh yeah, can you? I, What's I don't know plumage? much about that, but the birds start to recognize. I mean, so they that, can't. That's this, a decoy. What's this plumage? is this is speaking, the, the feather structure, the oh, patterns, okay. the colors, the p- position of the feathers. This oh, is okay. speaking almost exclusively to field goose hunting. Um, so snows and probably more so Canada geese. So I've got some, my hometown in central Minnesota, we've got a resident flock of birds that every year gets bigger and bigger. And there's a huge goose hunting community there. Professional call makers, professional goose hunters, goose guides, that kind of thing. It's like, it's big business. And over the years, when when we started doing this, we were using very simple shell style decoys that nested on top of each other. They They looked like a goose from afar. And again, I think the idea then is we're just trying to divert geese our direction to come take a look and hopefully get within that 40-yard line before we can take a bird. To now, they're so hyper-realistic that they use techniques called flocking in which they electrostatically apply um, fabric or, or uh, fibers to the, the exterior of the, the decoy to reduce shine and to make it look like real feathers. Because these birds, 
have become so educated over the years. They're seeing so many different spreads of decoys and hearing so many different calls and calling techniques and call styles that the birds change their patterns and they change their behavior. And um, when we were growing up, we realized that you could call geese if you were a good goose caller the first week of, of opening goose season. And then you really limited, if not eliminated, your calling or changed your calling styles to try to pull these birds in. And we went from having small decoy spreads to large decoy spreads, then back to small decoy spreads. And then we were changing from full-bodied goose decoy, so it's like the whole the whole goose, like a three-dimensional decoy, to uh, shells, like, again, those nesting types, to silhouettes. And mm. we were changing the decoy presentation to try to, I guess, uneducate the goose or, like, fool the goose into seeing something different than it had been seeing. Yeah, didn't you say that sometimes, like, the cheapest, most scoffed yeah. at thing would yeah. be the most successful because yep. it's just what everybody was going for the, the hottest, latest, greatest thing. Yeah. And you were just the one that was different. At the time, when I was big into goose hunting, field goose hunting especially, um, they they come out with a call called a short read. And it had been out before long before that. It was like 20 years before. But they'd really come onto the scene. Uh, there was a company called Foils that made, I think, one of the most successful short read goose calls. It's called the Straight Meat. Um, it was a very expensive premium call. It's like $150. Straight Meat. Yeah. And it made a very distinct sound. I, I mean, it was a wonderful call. It was very easy to blow if you were adept at it. You can make great sounds. And in the course of like five years... You could be a goose hunter on a field, and you could be like, that guy's blowing a straight meat. That guy's blowing a Tim Grounds. That guy's blowing uh, you know, some other type of yep. goose call. And then the geese kind of figured that out, too, and they became less responsive to that style of call or calling technique in which we would reverse, and we would go back to a traditional what's called a flute call, which you, you lack a lot of the tone range that you can get on a, a short read, and you lack the speed and, and like the calling finesse, and you just get this kind of long, soft honk. And we'd start killing birds again hmm. just by switching that call technique. And, and I think it truly was. The birds were educated to that style call, that style of decoy, that presentation. We'd mix it up. We'd start killing birds again. Hmm. Way more nuanced yeah. than... Yeah. And that is a whole nother bubble, like food or field goose hunting for Canada geese specifically. And and the snow goose guides will tell you the same thing. They used to run what was called socks or silos, and then they would run um, silhouettes just to have a huge effective spread. I was hunting a a spread in southern Illinois that had like 5,000 full-body goose decoys. You're talking about a multi, multi, multi multi-thousand-dollar operation. Every decoy is a full goose. They're so critical of them that they get rid of them after one season because the paint chips, they stain, they get sun bleached. And and they these guys are so good at it. This is what they do for like six, eight months out of the year that they've now determined that unless your decoys are, quote, fresh and look like live birds, they're ineffective. Or, or they, I'm not going to say ineffective, isn't that you never kill a goose off them, but they, they lose their effectiveness. They switch their decoys out after a season. Wow. So they're turning tens of thousands of dollars of decoys every year to try to get clients on birds. That's um, wild. I have not had the same experiences when hunting, specifically diving ducks. Um, I, I never got big into puddle duck hunting, or, or at least it was like the beginning of my duck season, but then I switched my focus onto diving duck species in which I was hunting like canvasbacks and ringbills and scops and, and uh, things like this. They seem to be much less critical of the quality of the decoy you use, more so the location that you're hunting, the winds, and then the presentation of your decoys on the water. So literally how we strung them out into the lake 
dictated our successes more so than like the quality of the decoy. Hmm. So you could go buy these ultra premium, hyper realistic three dimensional uh, paint job decoys, um, but we also had really good success by taking the inexpensive. What uh, do you remember the um, what was the hot by mallards? Yep, they were. I think you got a dozen decoys for like sixty bucks. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and and they were a good decoy, like f- from a realism standpoint. But I couldn't afford to go buy ten dozen diving duck decoys as a as a seventeen year old. So we bought these hot by mallards. We painted them black. And then we painted white on them to make them look like a diving duck. Most of those ducks are black and white. Hmm. And so we would run this huge 10 dozen bird spread of these decoys that we had painted in our, in our garage. Um, and that worked really well. And you had to just, you said you had to just like string them out, right? Yep. In the right way. Yeah. So we, we'd actually devised, um, and this is again, nothing that we pioneered. This had been going on since the duck men of the thirties and the forties were, were doing this on a commercial scale Well, prior to the thirties, I guess the twenties. Uh, and things like this, uh, we, long lines in which we would have uh, a, a very heavy cable or rope that would have attached to it like like eyelets that you would use for fishing. And then we would attach like a two-foot strand. We'd have a weight on either end. We'd drop the weight, clip the decoys on the line. And so we'd have like a 40, 50, 60-yard line of decoys running out into the middle of the lake, into the big water, into the deep stuff where the, the food source was. And then we would shape them generally in like a J uh, or a U shape, more more of a J or an L, I guess, um, so that the diving ducks would would see that large mass of birds. They they'd come down, they'd hook that J line, look for a place to land, and then fly down the line, present themselves to us, and then then you mm. could do a take. Rarely did we ever land divers. If if we did, they'd land way out on the end of our spread. We couldn't do anything with them. But yeah, yeah. Wow. The term running blocks does that come from? I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I very well might what might be. But like guys actually just running blocks. blocks of wood. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So and predominantly that would be a diver setup. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're running a string of essentially wood square wood, but it's floating on the water and is emulating diver ducks and yeah. they go down the line and again, like you said, try and shoot them, mm. shoot them as the as they pass. Yep. Divers are very fast. They are. Okay. They're not going to give you a lot of time. Okay. So you got to be quick. Yeah, and you're not really going to land them either. I mean, you can. I'm not going to say that you, you, you can't, but typically the opportunity is not presented like it would be with a puddle duck. Yeah. You know, where you're, where you're trying to land into some slack or static water. Diving ducks, usually you're hunting later in the season. Uh, a lot of times it's really bad weather, uh, big waves, stuff like that, and, and uh, the birds are, are turning and burning, and, and you got to be pretty adept. That's where shot. your skeet shooting skills come from. Yeah, pretty play. much, right. yeah. I think another thing with decoys is it's worth mentioning, like, less is not always a bad thing. No. If you don't have, like, a, a trailer full of full-body decoys, that's not the end of the world, you no. know? You can do a lot of good with a dozen decoys, positioning them in a way where you're actually encouraging birds to land in specific areas. They're looking at it like competition. If, you, yeah. if you've got a, a 20 dozen bird spread in a, you know, in a picked sweet corn yep. field... And all of a sudden, you have a flock of geese coming over. They're like, well, there's a lot of birds down yep. there. I don't, I'm not looking to get in a fight. You know, I just want to eat some sweet corn. Right. You know, less. <laughs> don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> less, well, less can definitely be more. One of the most beneficial things that I ever saw for, like, decoy spreads is I worked for a, a company that produced a waterfowl hunting show. So we would fly the drone over the top to show, like, the educational aspect of, like, this was our decoy spread today. This is why it worked the way that it did. That it did. And... 
you would notice the holes where we would strategically not put decoys. Like we might have decoys 50 yards out in front of us, which is way too far to shoot. Right. But you'd have a hole at 15 yards and those birds would feel like they want to land right in that hole. So when you look at stuff like that, obviously yeah. people don't it's like have a parking access. Lot. Yeah, people people don't have access to a drone. The average person doesn't. But if you think about that when you're placing your decoys out, rather than just get as many out as possible, think about okay, how am I going to encourage birds to feel comfortable being close to my layout blind or you know wherever it is that you're hunting. I think that's something to keep in mind, especially if you don't have two, three dozen decoys. Yeah. Well, when you're talking techniques too, you know, I mean that hole is essentially your, I mean, that's where you're trying to direct those birds yep. and where you want them to land. They're not going to land on top of other birds, right? right? So manipulating that setup and there's a ton of information, Ryan, I know I'm, I'm sure you've done it a, a lot as well, but there's, I mean, wind I mean, direction, wind direction, current, sunlight, right? Yep. Is, it, is it moving water, sunlight? Sunlight's a huge one to, to think about. I mean, I'm curious what your experience is with this as far as like layout blinds, but you know, some of those layup lines are so high profile. I remember a hunt years ago where we couldn't get any birds to cooperate early in the morning. And we were like, what the heck is going on? You know, we've stubbled in all our blinds. They were camouflaged really well, but the sun was at such a low angle that it was casting a huge shadow on the backside of that blind. As soon as the sun got up about 11 o'clock, it like switched and we were just, we limited out in an hour, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So because Mike, maybe you can speak to this. I know a lot of birds have excellent eyesight. Do all birds have excellent eyesight? I think birds in general have really decent eyesight. Songbirds do, raptors do, owls do. I'm not sure about waterfowl, though, hmm. how, how good their eyesight is. I think they notice a lot of color variation and shadowing and, and movement. You know, I think the, the placement of the eyeballs on the bird's head has a lot to do with this, and I'm not a scientist, so I can't really talk to it. But they, they do know color contrast really well. Um, and that's where concealing yourself is paramount. Everything tries you to wear good camo. And yeah, why not? Everything tries to eat birds, so like they're predisposed to being like crazy paranoid about everything where they land, <laughs> how they can get away to like like an exit strategy when a bird can get down. Does that look like a safe place that that bird can set and then take off if they need to? So if you're setting up in a tight corridor and you've got like timber all around, you may not do very well on a field hunt unless the birds are very acclimated to that field and they know that there's not a lot of predators mm-hmm. there. And they, you know, um, So can they get in easily? Can they get out easily? Can they observe for predators in 360 degrees? And when they're flying over it, does anything look out of place? And, mm. and, and they do. Like you, If you start calling, um, and I saw this with, with mallards in the timber and, and field geese especially, They'll fly over. They'll make multiple passes, and you can see them turn their heads, and they will look, and they will examine that spread, and they will examine the little pockets like Eric was talking about, these landing zones, and they'll, they'll suss out the viability of this, this feed or this, this spot to hang out and take a rest. And if it doesn't look right, they'll be like, nope, not happening. Mm-hmm. They'll go find a new spot, and they just plug off. Interesting. That I, is what's, I mean, when you watch a bird circle multiple, yeah, multiple, yep. multiple times, and you might be calling at it, and, and he's... Uh, it's it's amazing to watch how much they ascertain the situation. And like you said, mm-hmm. it's because every animal is trying to kill them, and then you know during the hunting season when they land, they're, they're getting shot at, and they know that they're vulnerable when they're going to land down yep. there. So again, it just goes back to you know having a real realistic decoy spread, concealing yourself, paying mm-hmm. attention to the conditions. 
and uh, and good calling, which I'm not uh, a good caller. I, uh, my buddy once told me, and maybe it's uh, a common thing that people always say, but the, the number one uh, factor in waterfowl conservation uh, was the duck call. <laughs> <laughs> a, yep. <laughs> a really interesting thing that I had learned once about, like, eyesight is – you know, the, the motion decoys, like a mojo yeah. or something like that, they're great. You know, they, they I think they work really well. But I was on a hunt several years ago. I don't know a whole lot about duck hunting. I was hunting with a buddy who knows a ton about it. And it was a bright, sunny day. And as soon as it clouded up, the first thing he said, he's like, we got to kill these mojos. We had a bunch of geese get up that, that were, start, or I forget if it was ducks or geese, whatever. We had a bunch of birds starting to work. The first thing he did is he got up because it clouded up really, really quickly and, and turned all those mojos off. And the birds ended up coming in and they committed. The reason he ended up, the, the reason you want to kill those mojos when it clouds up is they, think about it, you can pick up a lot more detail when it's not so contrasty, you know, like, like if you're looking into a a bright sunshine filled field, everything is very black and white, lot high contrast. But as soon as it clouds over, you can pick up every detail. And that was his point about those mojos is they can almost pick up that false wing beat motion. Yeah. And it's more uh, easily when there's not a bunch of sun in in their eyes. Exactly. Excess light. I remember the first hunt I was on where I saw a mojo. It was on Nicholson WPA in Fergus Falls, Minnesota. And these guys across the pond from us, like it was, quote, our pond. Yeah. It's got a memory like an elephant. And and they set up a mojo. It's an elephant. And yes. Looking at it across the lake, like absolutely transfixed by it. Like, Oh my God! They've got a, like a tethered duck. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and my, they've tamed one. You can't do that. <laughs> right? My grandfather and my uncle were were like true duck men. Like they lived, breathed, and and ate and slept waterfowl, and that's where I learned learned the the craft. And they'd never seen a mojo, and like my uncle wasn't going to buy a mojo. I was like a ten year old kid, right. so I wasn't going to buy a mojo. Those guys killed so many more ducks than we could have ever tried to that day. And, like, you'd swear those ducks had never seen a decoy spread, never heard a call, and they're just sucking in there. And, and again, they became more and more popular, more and more popular, Mm -hmm. and now their effectiveness gets questioned by some people. Like, God, do I run a mojo or do I not? No, I I put my emphasis on decoy quality, decoy placement, calling technique. Mm -hmm. Um, Hmm. And and so it's, it's neat to see, like, the human aspect of waterfowling change as the gear changes, yep. because I really do think the birds learn it mm-hmm. and, and do so pretty quickly. So it, it yeah, well, it's well, a little, it's a little bit of, and we we're talking about this before. It's like you know, fool me once, shame on you. Right. You know, fool me twice. Right. And and these trends get hot because they're working. So yep. you know, you tell your buddy, 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 buddy. You know, products get developed. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, now every time birds fly into an area where there's hunters, they're seeing that same thing. Yep. They learn it. They identify that that's danger. And then it becomes less effective. Yep. And these things live so long yep. that they can literally go and right. monitor those trends. And so, and then those trends also, you know, these they're migrating birds, right? So a person who is maybe further up north and it's the beginning of the season uh, might run a motion decoy or spinner, whatever you want to call it, and suck birds in like it's unfair but then as that bird travels south, he's like, yep, I've seen that before. I've seen that ruse. I've seen that ruse. So I think some of these tactics could be, you know, timing a year is going to be more effective. And then, you know, where you are geographically. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Camouflage. 
speaking of their eyesight, mm-hmm. do you have to get okay? Do you have to get the most fancy camouflage ever, or do you like how do you camouflage yourself? How should one think of doing it? Depends on the and internet. Do you have to switch your camo up every year? <laughs> no, it okay. depends on the internet. Honest to goodness, like I, I've had this conversation with a lot of people too, and and I think camo is important. I don't think you need to go out and spend $2,000 on outerwear to successfully hunt birds. Okay. Um, I think some of it, I was having a good conversation with a friend of mine who's a professional goose hunter, and he, he does buy very high-end camo brand, but doesn't necessarily adhere to a particular pattern or anything else because he's more reliant on his hide. It's more what, what kind of abuse can that gear withstand. Right. In and out of a, a pit blind, you're snagging on stuff, you're crawling on frozen dirt, you're going through corn stubble that can go through car tires. I mean, that's why he buys really good camo. Right? Oh, okay. He wants something durable that yeah. he's yeah. not going to have to, you know, A, potentially ruin a hunt. Right. You know, maybe your waiters, you know, get cut or yeah. whatever. And then, obviously, you don't want to be going back to the store every other week buying, you know. Right. Hmm. I think a lot of that influences a consumer. I think fancy decoys influence a consumer a lot, too. Like, a lot of... Really nice stuff fools more people than it does birds. The other half of that is then technique and and your location and and can you call and and that kind of thing. But you do need to have good camo. I don't recommend somebody goes out on an early season hunt wearing uh, a very like a yellow or brown pattern when it's really green. Correct. Yeah. If you're standing in a in a cattail swamp and the blades of the cattails are bright green, like damn near iridescent green, and you're standing there looking like a corn cob you're going to stick out like the bird's going to see that okay so you know maybe like play that out much like we would change perhaps our our colors turkey hunting you know i'm, I'm going to wear a, uh, a more drab bottom compared to a brilliant top in the early part because the foliage is just coming out for turkeys and then the floor is still brown where later in the season i'm going to go all green if i can help it and so no i don't think you need to go out and Go crazy on camel. Get good stuff that you're going to stay warm and dry and safe. Well, mm-hmm. Utilize the natural vegetation around yep, you. Yep. I think I think making a good hide, Eric had mentioned the term, stubbling your blind. A lot of these coffin or leotype blinds have like what looks like exaggerated molly webbing on them where you can like actually put foliage in. Oh, yeah. Corn yeah. stalks or wheat or cattails or that kind of thing. Be very adept at that, you know, and, and that'll do you a, a lot of good. Right. Mike, would you have? I was just going to say as someone who's photographed, a lot of birds. I, di- I sometimes wear camouflage and sometimes don't at all. But what I've noticed that birds notice is movement with respect to contrast. So if I'm wearing a, a white shirt out in green vegetation and I move my arm up to my camera to take a picture, they instantly see that and they're gone. Yeah. Yep. But if I'm wearing even just a drab color that matches the background, they're less likely to notice the contrast differential of my arm mm. coming over my chest up to the camera. Okay. So camouflage, of course, will help conceal that movement. But I've noticed it's just the movement, the differential of something moving over a white or yellow or, or red shirt. They just like, boom, they snap right on it and they see it like, ah, that's trouble. Yeah. And off they go. Yeah. Mm. Well, it, wouldn't it crazy? These weren't waterfowl by any means, but they were those birds. Remember those birds that flew over? There was like a giant flock and there's like a gazillion of them in a tiny tree here. And we were standing, yeah, well, oh, yeah. Wa- yeah, we were standing in a window looking at them. Mark and I were perplexed by the fact that so many birds had flown into one tree at one point in time. And then, uh, so we called another- Mike. Yeah, so we called Mike. <laughs> we literally, I think, I think, like frantically called Mike. Like Mike, come look at these birds. He came up, oh, cedar waxwings, or oh, is that what yeah, they were? Yeah. And uh, 
Then Sam, another guy who works here, not my brother Sam, but he just walks over because he was curious what all the commotion was, wearing a bright white T-shirt. And this is inside of the building, but he walked over to the window. Yep. Boom, all the birds were gone. <laughs> yep. That's at, typical. All at yeah. once. And, uh, and I remember that Mike looked over and he goes, oh, yeah, it was you. And we were like, what? And he's like, you're wearing a white shirt, and you walked over to the window. But boom, they just instantly, yep. and I think it was, they must have some pack mentality because one of them left, and then all of them. Now, I think I read, Mike, and I know we were talking about the eyes of waterfowl a little bit earlier, and so, but do they see an ultraviolet? I don't know if some birds, I think, vision. have the ability to, um, I think it's or, UV light. Or yeah. to, pick, to pick up I don't UV. Know if, I don't know if waterfowl can, though. One of the oh, things yes, I read is, uh, well, I guess my thought with that was, I think, you know, certain detergents with brighteners, oh, yeah. would, you know, like you, so you might want to be mindful of if you do end up washing your hunting clothes. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's a good I've, question. I've heard that, like, I haven't, I haven't heard it specific to uh, waterfall, but I, I have definitely seen that marketed like crazy in the whitetail and like big game world. Well, like, yeah. you got the yeah. picture of the guy yeah. standing there and he's like, he's, he's, looks he's like he's blue. under a black light. Yeah. yeah. Use this special soap. Wash your hunting clothes. <laughs> I tell you what, they got me to buy into yeah. it. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't. You know, I don't try to stay scent free because I just, at least for me and my lifestyle, like I just find it to be an impossibility. But I do wash my clothes without, without and detergents that don't have brighteners and yep. are unscented. Hmm. All right. I think the big thing with with like waterfowl too is uh, super shiny things. You know, like I have my my dad's uh, eight seventy Wingmaster, like has a high gloss finish. And years and years ago, we used to rent like a a blind from a farmer. Like he had this, you know, cut cornfield. After the corn came out, you could rent a blind on his property. This was when I was first getting into duck hunting. We didn't have anything, so we just needed a place to go, and. I was in one blind. My dad was like with my uncle, and then my dad was hundred yards like straight off to our left. And this goose flew over him. I'll never forget when he like picked up his gun to, to shoot at it. Like he picked up his gun, you could see him swinging, and all of a sudden, like it just there was a blinding ray of light, and that was right when his glossy barrel went through the sun. Mm-hmm. And you could see that plain as day from a hundred yards away. Let alone if you were a goose thinking about committing, you know, <laughs> yeah. goose was too close at that point. It was too late for it. But I guarantee you that goose's last sight was that flash of his gun yeah. barrel. Hmm. So, oh no! Well, yeah. and, and you bring up a couple things there, and we're talking about you know flashy and contrast. So your face, your hands, yep. you know, those are two things. A watch. Sunglasses. You know, a watch. Sunglasses. Oh yeah, I know. I've actually had oh, yeah, my sunglasses on my blockers. head. Yeah, look at these bad boys. A lens. But yeah. um optics and, lenses will do yep. it. And yeah. had birds flare and you're like, oh man. And then you're like, oh yeah. Like I bet it was I bet it was my sunglasses yeah. that were on my hat that I had on because when the sun was rising, the sun was blasting me in the face. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it got a little bit higher. So hmm. yeah, just some things to keep in mind there for sure. With the time with the time left, we're still good on time. But I want to ask about calls and guns. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. Or maybe oh a lot of people would think it's important. So for the call, I assume, I, based on what we talked about previously, I assume that you probably don't necessarily need to go with the fanciest, high-classiest, most handcrafted, wood grain, whatever call in the world. But what do you look for in a call? I, um, I don't know. How does it sound? And then can you blow it? Like real? Are you looking for a realistic sound or yeah. just a different sound? I mean, sound, you, you kind of you know when you get a call that's got a rotten tone to it. It'll sound like metallic or muted. It doesn't 
properly like emulate the bird's sound, right? So generally speaking, uh, speaking of goose calls, a premium goose call is generally made out of like acrylic or a very high-end wood, and more often than not, acrylic. Uh, because the tone, it's very tone neutral. It doesn't goof anything up. You don't get any weird um, pitches or pings in there. Um, there's a lot of good custom call makers out there. Um, acrylic is like the, the material of choice uh, for a lot of those. Um, and then there's polycarbonate, which is a step down in, in quality. And generally speaking, the polycarb calls don't have that rich, nice, even tone that the acrylics can. Um, they, they sound, well, they sound plasticky when you blow them is a really good description. In duck calls, acrylics are also very popular, but but so are laminates, you know, so like a plywood, if you will, you know, you'll hear them referred to as a lot of different things, but you can make a really good duck call out of that. I would say I'm not a professional caller. I think there's a difference between a competition caller and then an effective goose caller and an effective duck caller. Um, the two don't necessarily mean the same thing. Um, with a professional goose caller, you're trying to impress judges with your, your tonal range and with your frequency that which you can call and how many notes can you make in like a single second or a single breath? How many different birds can you sound like at one time? Whereas like a really good field call might, might be a different thing altogether. Now, if you're a professional goose caller, chances are you're a very good field caller too. So do some research, listen to some people. They'll tell you what is a good call and, and they'll tell you why. Like it's easy to blow or it's very durable or the reed material lasts a long time because they are kind of serviceable parts on the inside, okay. um, and then make that determination. Unfortunately, a lot of the really popular calls that sound real nice are pretty expensive, too. Uh, I've got that, that same buddy of mine I was talking about. Uh, he's a professional goose guide. He's also a professional goose caller. He's won multiple state and, and placed very high-level national championships. Realized that there's like this, this vacuum in which these super premium call makers are, are making 200 to $250 calls, um, and everybody's buying them. So he made one out of Delrin, which is a fairly inexpensive material, mm-hmm. played with the, the tone board and played with the reeds. He sells it for like 60 bucks. Um, and it sounds like a $250 custom competition call. Um, so if you do your research, you can find a really good bargain on a good call. For goose calls, I think the, uh, the old... for uh, good race bushings, too, in a car. Do they? Delrin. Well, there you go. On goose calls, the, uh, the old Big River, remember the, uh, the flute? Oh yeah, it's. I still think he's one of the best calls out there. It's like like sixteen ninety nine. Yep. Uh, pretty good call. Um, duck calls. There's a lot of stuff going on with duck calls. Oh, single read, double read, half read. What material do you get it out of? What shape? There's a ton of stuff. Should you just that. get one and just see yep. what it how it works? Yep. And if it. Yeah, and I, I think Ryan, you hit on a couple things there, and I think one of those is a call doesn't have to be super expensive to sound good. No, you just need to know how to blow it. Yeah. Right. Like a, a, a professional violinist would be able to pick up a, a budget brand starter violin and make it sound beautiful, whereas like a, a starter violinist couldn't pick up a you know Stradivarius and make it sound okay. concert level. But yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, get good at calling. I, modesty is key, I think. Everybody sees a lot of these competition callers on YouTube and they think like, that's how I need to go approach my my calling situation, that might not be the best way to do it. Yeah. Learn how to make the basic notes, learn how to circular breathe, learn how to, you know, get the most out of whatever call you have. And I think you'll be more successful. Hunt a spot that's got birds in it too. That really helps. How do you breathe in a shape? So circular breathe. You're using pressure inside of your mouth to blow air through the call while simultaneously breathing in through your nose. Or you're, you're making very strategic breaths so that it doesn't sound like you're like, blowing a sequence, stopping, and then blowing a sequence. Um, 
it might not be the exact same thing as circular breathing, but you're 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 lessening the interruptions within your your note string to breathe. You're Air, breathing out and breathing in at the same time. Yeah. I don't how think I, that's possible. Yeah, that's how, how is I, that possible? How do you? I, who would, lungs don't work that so way. So think <laughs> again, again. So no, that's why you have two. You're pushing. Jim. You're pushing. <laughs> you're pushing <laughs> air. You're pushing air through your mouth using your cheeks. This is how. He, so I play the didgeridoo. Remember this? You circular uh-huh. breathe. You're pushing air with your cheeks, oh. breathing through your nose, or you're just lessening those stops or taking much shorter breaths and very strategic. Oh, I locations. think I just did it. You got to pick up a didgeridoo. That's how you learn how to do and it. And I think a lot of it is is like diaphragm yep. based. Correct. That, when I started like trying to blow a, a duck call, it was horrible because I'm blowing yeah. air. You know, yeah. you're getting exhausted. Mm-hmm. Like it yeah. should be that. Like you, you should literally hear that. Like when you're bugling. I think that's really like any calling. Yeah. Yep. Turkey calling on a diaphragm yep. or bugling or duck calling. It really has to come from your diaphragm and less of and like that, just when you wind play the blowing. didgeridoo. Does it have to come from the diaphragm? But then you circular breathe, so you're In not a circle, the, not a triangle. It's it's not. You're not sitting there like. <sighs> There's no pause right. when you're playing a didgeridoo right. in, in the music. You're, you're not. You're not trying to like blow out a candle when you're calling with a duck or a goose call. You're making very calculated, small bursts of air. Generally, I, I like when people ask me, "How do you blow that call?" Um, I've how do I put this? I position my tongue at the bottom of my mouth to fill up a small pocket of air, and then push my tongue forward to make that note. And I can do that a lot more times than if I sit there and go, honk, honk, through the call. So, geez. Yeah. I mean, would you say you're almost, with your diaphragm, you're almost able to maintain, like, a certain amount of pressure? Yeah, 100%. Yep. It's hard to describe. This is too complicated. I'm never doing it. Yeah, it's complicated. Yep. Just get a call and practice. That's what you're... Mike's coming with us. Mike's got his iPad here, and he has calls on that, so we'll just get a Bluetooth You know, do people do that? Yeah. Oh, really? Just yeah. bring out a speaker. And uh, it's not it. legal. And, like, you can use electronic calls to, to call snow geese. Yeah. Um, certain species you can't. Correct. Okay. Okay. Yep. And okay. certain states have different stipulations on that. But I mean, to my knowledge, snows are the only waterfowl you can use an electronic call, yeah? So, so far as I you know. You know what, though? Here's the thing. All these ducks and everything, they're going to start getting used to all the different kind of calls. And then I'm going to go out there and just say, yee! And they're <laughs> going to they're gonna start coming in. Well, and then it'll be different. They'll be like, "What? Whoa, what was that? Sounds safe." Carl, here, duck. <laughs> Carl, yeah. <laughs> hey, there's a safe place to land right over here. Well, I'd, I'd say you could probably go out and you wouldn't even have to call. Yeah, certain I, situations I totally like hunting yeah. diving ducks. Diving ducks make a call. They make like a muted chatter, so it doesn't sound unlike a, a feeding chatter from a mallard. Yep. Right, just much quieter. So instead of it being like that, you know that that chatter, 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 chatter with a mallard. It's more like a, and so you can call a diving duck. Like I have a diving duck call. I don't really know that I employ it ever, um, or when I used to waterfall a lot, um, I, I never really used it a lot. Um, if I had birds that were working, um, I would. I'd, I'd even take up my regular uh, duck call, like my mallard call, and I would make that same kind of just to kind of capture their attention. Try to pull them in and get them huh. in. Mm. It's not like a turkey, right? right? So when you call a turkey, you're calling to an individual bird and you're trying to get him to come to you. Yep. And, and I think I think a Canada goose might might be a lot more like a turkey than say a mallard would be. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, as far as guns go, I think any good shotgun that you're good with is twelve gauge, twelve or twenty. I or killed 20. I killed my first duck with a single shot twenty gauge. I killed my first goose with a pump twenty gauge. 
Um, I, I've hunted ducks with a 20, but a 12 is... I feel like the gun... I, when it comes to 12-gauge or 20-gauge shotguns, but just for simplicity's sake, let's say 12. Yeah. The the guns, I mean, those are like... They're practically like a blunderbuss. I mean, right? They're going to work. Yeah. You know? yeah. We can even get... We have some... We have a $60 12-gauge shotgun here that looks like it has a sawed-off barrel, and you know, but it'll shoot something. Yeah, you could kill a duck with it. Right. Yeah. I think what it comes down, like, what ammo choice do you use? What what load are you choosing? And it then chokes. also what choke? Species-specific, species season-specific as well. Um, so when I was growing up, my, my father and I would go to Cabela's in our, in our annual pilgrimage to go buy shells. So okay. we would buy two cases of three-inch number fours and two cases of three-and-a-half-inch BBs <laughs> because you needed three-and-a-half-inch to kill geese. As I became a better wing shooter and then started understanding uh, exterior ballistics a little bit better, I switched to smaller shot sizes, better shot. So I went away from budget steel and went into like what they call a non-toxic or a bimetal blend. So I was shooting things like heavy shot and bismuth and, and tungsten. Um, and I was then switching to two and three quarter inch shells instead of the three and a half inch shells. Um, and then I was switching. Tell me about your marble floors and your gold banisters. Too. You know, I, I, my dad <laughs> said the same thing to me. He said, I'm not buying that stuff because it's too expensive. And again, part of this is if you're a really good wing shooter, you can go out there with the worst shot possible. And as long as you know your gun and you know your leads, you're going to crush birds. But my cripples started going way down. My, my lost birds started going way down. And I was killing ducks dead, and I was killing geese dead. Um, and when I did, when I switched to uh, Environmental's Heavy Shot, it, it was a game changer. I, I don't shoot steel anymore because it kills birds better. That stuff is pretty lethal. Well, and you talk about, like, you don't, ultimately, you don't need as many shells. No. So you're probably making up some of that initial yep. cost. You know, you're not knocking a bird down, got a cripple, and, you know, doing two more follow-up yep. shots yep. when and, it's on the water. And the, the evolution of steel shot has gotten to the point now where I think Definitely good steel is available. You can buy affordable steel shot that's that's set up really good and, and yes. works great. When we started, I remember F-Shot. Remember F-Shot? Yep. Mm-hmm. So my old man bought a, a Mossberg 835. It was the first commercially available 3.5-inch 12-gauge specifically to kill geese because he had to have a 3.5-inch, and he bought F-Shot. And that stuff, if you cut that shell open, you look at it in your hand, it is garbage. Like you look at the BBs and they look like tiny little lunar bodies, like terrible quality. Like they're not round. <laughs> They've got craters. They're rusty. Whereas if you go pick up like Kent Fast Steel now mm-hmm. and you cut it open, you pull it up, they look like ball bearings. They're going to fly good. They're going to penetrate good, which is what you, you need too when you're trying to shoot birds. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you need a three and a half inch shell. I don't even think you need a three inch shell. Commonly available though, you're going to find three inch, 12 gauge, probably more than you're going to find two and three quarter inch. For ducks, I like number threes and number fives. Um, for geese, I like ones uh, and B or BB um, if it's later in the season. But but a one shot is is fine too if you're decoy hunting. Spend a little more on a premium steel. I think it does better. It patterns better. Um, also, pattern your gun just like we would for turkeys. Don't take for granted. You get a 12 gauge. It's got a bead on it. You go to shoot birds. That's great. Go out, put a patterning board up, and see where your gun shoots. Mm-hmm. Also, hit the clays range with your shotgun. Learn your gun. What kind of choke do you use? Uh, so there again, depends. If I'm field hunting geese and I'm, I'm decoying birds close, I'm shooting like a light modified. And I mean, I just want to really think about it. I pretty much just shoot a light or an improved modified for everything. But that's just kind of like my shooting style. What do you use, Mark? I'd say pretty much the same as Ryan. 
in okay. general. I mean, as far as ammo, though, I mean, and again, it's just kind of what I've gone to over the years. When I first started hunting ducks, I'd use two shot, and then now I shoot a lot of three inch, four shot. I'd say pretty much for all my duck hunting, I shoot three inch fours, and then for pretty much all my goose hunting, I do three inch BB. Mike, you gonna get a shotgun? You've gotten some precision rifles. You've gotten some a pistol. You've got. Do you have an AR yet? A couple of them, actually. Couple, oh, a couple yeah. of them now. Oh, wow, I've <laughs> I uh, been out of the loop. You gonna get a shotgun? Perhaps we'll see. We'll yeah. see. Yeah, we need to get Mike in the blind so I, he can duck well, ID for I gotta, us. And I gotta can... ask Mike quick though. So if you got, judging by your decisions and what you've gotten as far as the the last few guns that I saw was your precision rifle or rifles. Yes. Got a Brigar and a Tika. Right. Your choices in that, pistol, all those things. You, you, you clearly have an eye for good stuff. If you went shotgun route, now there's there's two different routes you can go. You have you have the folks like Mark, who likes to get a nice semi-auto. Oh, you're just the first, okay. You're just the first person to my left. All right, Mark? Easy now. I'm going to mention everybody. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Mark likes a nice semi-automatic. You use a uh, Beretta, right? Uh, right now, right now a, uh, Benelli, a Benelli M2. Okay. Eric uses, uh, after just making the motion of the fact that Mark has his, his nose in the air, Eric uses his old 870. <laughs> That's what I was, this is what I knew was coming. <laughs> oh, but hold on, though. Wait till they get around to me, right? Eric uses the old 870, right? Yep. Ryan has an affinity for fine break action over, under, or side by sides. Yeah, I, I use a Benelli M2 and a Vinci for ducks. Okay, well, I guess then I'm the fancy one with my nose in the air because I have a break uh-huh. action over under, a browning, what you might call it. Synergy. Synergy. So there's, there's all these different routes that you can go. There are two different approaches that I take to uh, procurement of, of things, hobbies, or whatever. I, uh, in one respect, like take guitars, for example. I'm a snob. I like really expensive Fender Stratocaster guitars. Okay. Sold most of my collection, but a um, long time ago. But uh, take cars, for example. Toyota Corolla, point A to point B. For me, cars are just a commuter device. So I, nothing fancy with a car. Are you trying to upset Jim? Jim has a optics. new vein coming out of the center of his forehead. <laughs> well, take uh, optics. I like really good optics. So a little bit of yeah. an optics snob. Yeah. Cameras, not so much, because I think with, uh, with cameras, I don't need a super expensive camera to do what I want to do with photography. Well, you had an incredible picture of that bug. It looked like it had a gas mask on its face. <laughs> So it really depends on on the application, uh, where I might spend a lot of money on something really nice or think more budget-minded, practicality. This is something I might try only a few times a year, and so I'm not going to go crazy with it. Right, right. So I was listening to, like, a a thought occurred to me with uh, Ryan's uh, excellent explanation of of calls. The question I had in my mind was, is should a novice... Should a novice consider a more expensive call because they'll have more success with it? Like, think of optics, for example. If a novice purchases a really expensive binocular, they are going to do better in identification because they can see better. Yeah. But yeah. we often tell people, if you're a novice, not to spend a whole lot of money on an optic because you, you might not benefit from it. But or I you think may, the opposite or you may is find, true. The other thing that might happen, too, is that you think you're going to be into this hobby, and so... You and might then you're guess, not. And then you're all of a sudden yeah. not, and you yeah. have 1200 bucks. I think you sitting sell there. it, but you, know, right. you might lose right. what you put into it. I think you have a lot more leeway with a, a shotgun, like you can grow into this. But I'm going to go back to cars. If Mike, you told me you wanted to get into a performance car, 
I'm not going to suggest you go buy a ZR1 that can go 213 miles an hour. Maybe start with something a little more sane. Learn how to drive and then consider that avenue. Mm-hmm. I don't think the novice... Yeah, a car like that would pretty much ruin you. Right. I mean, you know, wrap you around a tree before right. you even know how to... I think the novice should start modest and, and really hone that skill. Um, and you can get into a really good call that's modestly priced. I don't think you need to go buy a $250 acrylic. Like, it's just not not really what you need to succeed. And the same thing with a shotgun, too. You can get very adept with a Remington 870 that was built in 1986, um, and you can crush birds with it way better than somebody who went out and dumped a buttload of money on, you know, XYZ brand uh, ultimate waterfowl shotgun. If you can't shoot it, you can't shoot it. It's just the way it goes. I think that each one will have its attributes, right? Like I hunt with the guns I hunt with because of the way they swing, the way that they pattern, the, the felt recoil, the follow-up, et cetera. But I don't think that that makes me any better a duck hunter than Eric with his 1996 vintage 870 with a crack in the wrist. Yep. It's kind of like, yeah, it's just like my Ruger American yep. that I've been using. Yep. After five years now, I loved it, and now my love for it is like, the sentimental love for it continues to go up, but the actual practical love for it is going down because I'm like, I'm kind of sick of the way that this thing just doesn't work as right. nice as other people's so fancy with, guns. Was, and I feel like I've shot enough now and I'm good enough now that like maybe I can actually get a nicer gun. With Mike, <laughs> if I was to guide him into a purchase, I would say like, Mike, I know what your skill set is here. I, I think that your budget might be here we'd land somewhere in the middle of like the $500 to $1,000 range on a shotgun to get your feet wet to figure out if you like it. Because if you don't and you want to resell it, you're not going to take a bath and lose a ton of cash. Well, mm-hmm. it's kind of like what I did with precision shooting. I mean, my first rifle was a modestly priced Bergara. Yes. But then my next one was the Tika, and I put a lot of money into yeah. that one. And I do like it better. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think yeah. you probably yeah. found via that, original rifle kind of stuff you liked about it, some things you didn't like about it, and then you were able to make an actual personally informed decision via your own experiences, you know, on your next purchase. Yeah, don't true. don't let any waterfowler tell you that if if your budget dictates that you buy a four hundred dollar used Stoger, that you're somehow going to not be able to enjoy waterfowling because that is a farce. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Get 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 out with whatever means you have and enjoy it. Well, then you just look at familiarity, right? We're talking about Eric's 870. He's been running that same gun for ducks, maybe even some deer, turkeys forever. I'm pretty sure he's highly familiar with that gun, how it operates, how Mm -hmm. it points, and he's going to be pretty darn deadly with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. Yeah. Shoot what you're familiar with, what works, you know. Listen to who's talking, these two over here with their... uh Fancy PRS bows. <laughs> we won't even we won't even get into Mark and Eric's bow setups. Yeah, shoot what you're familiar with, and you know you don't have to go crazy. So we'll leave that for uh, a discussion. For PRS bows, fair enough. Um, your your go to war bows, excellent. I feel like we covered some good stuff. Also, the screen continues to get redder and redder as we go. Does it get hour. progressively redder? It, it actually does. Yeah, like when we hit an hour, we we discussed this in a previous one too. When we hit an hour, it's it's not red at all. MC Ryan's like subtle hint. Yeah, 
fellas wrap it up. By two hours, it just cracks down the middle. <laughs> the just screen, like red the screen fluid cracks. oozing out of the crack. Ryan the just floor opens up. up and we yeah. just, I, exactly. I actually figured he'd come out with like a fire extinguisher and just be... <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're done. No words. Okay. Right. I think his his sweatshirt is actually red as well. I'm, I, I'm, I'm assuming it started out black. It did. It did. <laughs> yeah. All right. Perfect. Uh, so with that said... Who wants to close this one off? We won't do a full round of uh, five people doing last calls. I've got a couple last calls. Okay. <laughs> and then I anybody figured, else? I figured I'd offer it up because I, I knew that you'd have a few. So here's, here are some of my thoughts as we talked about waterfowling. And there's, as I always say, there's, there's people that are way more adept at waterfowling than I. But as kind of a, a 101-ish type thing, my suggestions would be mm-hmm. maybe start out with the puddle ducks with your mallards, uh, with your widgeon, uh, things of that nature from, from an accessibility standpoint. I think if you don't have a lot of money, you can certainly learn a lot from just going a field. So if, if you don't, if you aren't able to make the investment in decoys, I wouldn't say, or decoys and calls, I wouldn't say don't go. I'd say go. Go with uh, somebody too. That's the great thing about waterfowl hunting. Like people Oh are my gosh, we didn't even talk about the social aspect. Yeah, that's... Oh, geez. Mark's yes. favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Mr. Fire Social. Up the skillet. Get can, to- we, can we also explain the fact that every time I'm pretty sure Mark goes waterfowl hunting, he winds up with a new friend a whose new dog, dog he's yeah. bar- he borrowed. Yep. And, you know, and he comes in the next day. Time, oh, yeah, I met this guy. We hung out. I used his dog. Yeah, we shot Chewy some birds. Chewy was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just look so pitiful out there by myself. They're like, oh, my God, help this guy. Um, <laughs> Eric was talking about, you know, if you do want to get into the decoy game you don't need i mean it can definitely be an asset in some scenarios but you don't need a ton of decoys if you do have a, a solid dozen decoys you can hike into places and be a little bit more mobile and get into some water that you know a, a person with a uh, mm-hmm. a giant spread isn't yeah. going to be able to lug that many right. decoys that far or into these smaller spots where you actually don't need a lot of decoys anyway we'll be talking about that in due time here next pod venture yes sir so likely and calls, Ryan, for ducking, I'd say, you know, since I'd say that's probably the most accessible, maybe least investment, a good double read. At least I find they're easy to blow. Yeah. Make some duck sounds with. Yep. Thoughts on that? I think that's a good one. Six and six and one whistle, too. Don't oh. leave that on your lanyard. Mm. Yeah. Yes, sir. My Uncle Bill can make a mean duck call with just no call at all. Really? He just kind of like, yeah. He also talks like Daffy Duck. It's pretty cool. So it's not all the time, just he can. Um, <laughs> and also, he sounds like Daffy Duck. Uh, yeah. I'll throw this last thing in there because I'm never done. Although maybe frowned upon at times, but. Here's where we get into sky busting. Well, pass I'm not shooting. saying yeah. sky busting, yeah. but I'm saying responsible pass shooting and jump shooting. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Which jump shooting would be the stalking of ducks on. You know, I guess a still or moving water, potentially. Uh, you better have a way to retrieve them uh, in both scenarios. But uh, And you jump them up and shoot them out of the air, and off you go. If the objective is duck confit at the end of this, any means of take is outstanding if you're mm-hmm. within the, the uh, constraints of legalities. and Good food all around, too, on waterfowl. Yeah. Jeez, I feel like Man, we're snow goose poppers. Yeah. Snow we made goose those. poppers. We had a podcast on that. God. Stopped up the whole entire septic system of yeah. the business or whatever it is. Uh, Lost a lot of good men that All day. good things. All good things. We should also point out Mike McDowell, even though we didn't we didn't use it. What's this book again? Oh, it's just a, I thought we might make reference to, you know, it's a field guide. 
It's this. It's a field guide, and uh, does that have waterfowl in it? Yeah, it does. I haven't. I can't believe there's that many birds. Dude, like 900 species in North America. It's just incredible. Like what? Oh, here they are. Yeah, ducks are the ones. There you go. Yeah. Do they describe the the wing beats in that book, Mike, at all? No, they just show them in flight. Okay. You know, I was just going to say earlier that your mergansers tend to look more loon-like in flight with kind of their neck and head down more, whereas other... your diver, diving ducks and dabblers. Um, What's look a, a which one's more. like a diving duck? Uh, well, back, they can't, yeah, the these this duck right here and okay. all those a redhead. Ducks. Yeah, all these guys, Blue the bills. scop and uh, ring neck ducks. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I, ducks, ducks eiders. look cool. We didn't really talk about eiders, oh. but you know, you, I don't know if you knew this or not, there are occasionally eiders on Lake Michigan. Hmm. Um, Is that the one with the weird yellow thing on his yep. head? And scoters. And well, this is harlequin duck, which um, do show up in Wisconsin periodically. Well, that's oh, yeah. And this yeah. is a uh, duck Ryan was talking about before the long neck duck or old long, squat. Long tailed. A long tailed duck, yes, yeah, sorry. And scoters, which um, actually show up, a uh, long tailed duck and the various scoters show up on Lake Mendota, which I usually find every year. Why would primarily, anybody want to go on that lake? Yeah. The dirty old lake. I'd, typically, you would find these ducks out on Lake Michigan, way out. Uh, yeah, it's uh, cool. normally beyond uh, binocular view, you need a, oh, wow. a good spotting scope to, to even be able to identify them. Which is something interesting we didn't even really talk about was how optics play into waterfowling. Which well, I, I future don't know. podcast, yeah. yep, <sighs> or or scopes, yeah, or red dots. Go foul them out, <laughs> or or conservation. <laughs> I thought maybe we'd talk about conservation and get into the whole dichotomy of. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna bring you on again, Mike, because now we're gonna have to talk about all those things that you just brought up. So, if you, yeah, if we can we can do that. That's the implication of the 101 part, though. There may be a 102, sure, all right, yeah, whatever yeah. you call it. So, with that said, thanks everybody for listening. Let us know if there's anything else in addition to the things we brought up here at the end that we missed that you'd like to know about waterfowling because we uh, we'd like to talk about it more. All right, good to go. There you have it. Thanks. Happy guys. hunting and shooting, everybody. Thanks. See ya. Bye. Bye. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you can take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.